seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And our New Testament reading is Hebrews chapter 1. The author of the Hebrews here, picking up in the glory of Christ, King Jesus, as He ascends to His Father and is seated, enthroned in glory at His Father's right hand. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as He by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? That sends the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Father, once again, we look to you. We look to you to work in us your word. We hang on your words. We we live by your words. Feed us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I'm sure you know that the opening question 
of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He said, uh, the author of Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson, a good Scotsman himself, uh, would have known that catechism, and he, he did know that catechism, and he, he, even though he walked away from the faith uh, and was by no means an Orthodox Christian, uh, he appreciated something about the first question and answer of the Shorter Catechism. He said, it strikes at the very roots of life. It gets, it gets right down to what's most ultimate and most basic, man's chief end. But more, more than that, it, it doesn't just strike at the roots of life, as Stevenson says. Uh, it orients everything. It directs everything, points everything to God. It directs absolutely everything to God. And, and this is not just the teaching of the Catechism, right? It's the clear teaching of Scripture. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. That's as broad and comprehensive and sweeping as you can get. God made everything for one purpose. His own glory. It's one of the wonderful things about Scripture. And one of the striking things about Scripture is it's so God-focused. It's God-obsessed, we might say. It refuses to let anyone but God get the glory, be the hero. It, it refuses to allow glory go to any other but only the Lord. It's one of the things that marks it out as the Word of God, as, that evidences that it is God's Word according to the confession of faith. John Piper picks up on this argument as well in his book, A Peculiar Glory. He argues that the glory of the Bible, the peculiar glory of the Bible, is its laser focus on God's glory. The glory of God. It's what we were made for. It's what everything was made for. Psalm 24 is a psalm that is all about the glory of God. It shouts it out. It trumpets it. It announces it. It's, it's an exuberant psalm. It's a reverent psalm. It's a, a psalm that's full of awe. It's a psalm that um, is, is therefore so helpful to us. Uh, we, can get, uh, we, can, we can get so curved in on ourselves, right? That's a, it's a, a, a great expression for what sin does to it. It makes us curve in on ourselves, so that we're self-focused and self-obsessed. And, and Psalm 24 kind of comes along and straightens your back so you can see things properly again. It, it takes your attention off yourself, off ourselves for a while, and fixes it, fixes our attention on God's singular glory. How does it do this? Well, it focuses especially on the glory of God, the glory of the Lord as King. And it does this in, in three, three ways, three aspects of God's glory as King. And that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the three aspects of God's glory as King in this psalm. So number one is the scope of His kingship. Number two will be the holiness of His kingship. Number three will be the victory of His kingship. So we'll move through the psalm with those headings. The scope of His kingship, that's verses 1 and 2. The holiness of his kingship, verses 3 through 6. The victory of his kingship, verses 7 through 10. So first, the scope of, of his kingship, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 begins the song with just majestic eloquence. I don't think you can match the, 
the King James Version, their translation here, it says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. What a, what, it's an unashamed pronouncement that God is the glorious Creator God, the King over all things. In particular, verse 1 tells us that God has absolute ownership over everything. Think about that. Everything. The galaxies, the stars, the planets, the whole cosmos. Every, every tree and rock and animal. Every ocean. Every inch of it all. He owns it. It's His. He has rights over it. It belongs to Him. It's not just that, that all, all, all matter belongs to Him. All time belongs to Him. Everything that is made. That includes every moment. And it includes us, doesn't it? It includes, it includes ourselves. It includes uh, our, ourselves, our families, our homes, our church. Everything. He owns it. What does this, what does this mean for us? We read, we read this verse. It tells us God owns everything. What does that mean for us? Well, first of all, very simply, it means that we don't own it. Yes, of course, God in the creation mandate gives us stewardship over things. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. He gives us, he gives us things to possess for our own. He does. But, but everything that there is that, that has been created, ultimately, He owns, not us. We're not, we're not really ultimately owners. We're, we're the caretakers of the property. He's given us a task to do in that. So this means that, uh, that my time, I don't, I don't own my time. God owns my time. The paycheck I get, that's God's, not mine. The, 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 the skill set He's given me, it's His, not mine. My family, my kids, His, not mine. We are stewards, caretakers. It's all His. The scope of verse 1 here is just staggering, isn't it? These implications are so far-reaching for us. If my time's not my time, but God's gift to me, how should I then use it? If, if my resources aren't really mine, but they belong to Him, how should I use them? If my kids aren't really mine, but His, how do I raise them and train them? There's, a, there's something grand and glorious about this. There's also something frightening about this. These implications can be frightening. If everything that exists belongs to Him, then it means that, that, that I owe Him everything. I'm obligated to Him. It's not as though if I, if I spend my life obeying God and serving Him perfectly, as if I've done Him a favor. I've just done my bare duty if I've done that. So there's something frightening in this verse. Winston Churchill felt this same thing. He understood something frightening here. Um, his, his nature, like every sinful human nature, kicks against this idea. In his autobiography, he has a charge to young men where he takes this verse from Psalm 24, Psalm 24, verse 1, and he, he, re, he rewrites it like this. He says, The earth is yours and the fullness thereof. Well, that's a message we like, isn't it? It's yours. Go get it. Do, you know, it's yours for the taking. Now, as I said earlier, there is a, there is a sense in which he can say that based on the creation mandate back in Genesis. Right? We, God gives us the earth to fill it, subdue it, work it, and keep it. But, but, but Psalm 24.1 says, no, it is not yours, ultimately. It is God's. 
So verse 1 tells us God owns everything. Why? Verse 2. Verse 2 roots this ownership of God of all things in the fact that God is the creator of all things. Here's verse 2 again. For, it begins, because, so we're getting the reason here, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. We're hearing an echo here, I think, of Genesis 1, where God creates all things out of nothing. And, and as we're told there in Genesis 1, 2, after God creates everything, he then forms it and shapes it. And as he does, we're told in Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. God goes on to create. He, he, he separates the, 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 the dry land from the waters. And that's what this Psalm here, 24, verse 2, Psalm 24, 2, is telling us. God is the one who established the earth in this way, even as it's described in Genesis chapter 1. God is the one who established the earth. He built the foundations of the cosmos. Over and over again, the Scripture points us to God as our Creator, doesn't it? Over and over, it, it draws our attention to, to this, that God is the Creator and we are not. It sets up this distinction that He is the Creator and we are the creature. And there's a line there that can never be crossed. Trying to cross that line. Trying to, to make ourselves the Creator. Which, when we try to say we own what He owns, uh, is really what we're doing. Is, is to be like Adam and Eve in the garden as they listen to Satan's uh, lie to them when he says, you will become like God. He's saying to creatures, you'll be like the Creator. You'll have His kind of sovereignty and ability and rights. The psalm says, no, God is God. He's the Creator. We are the creature. Give glory to Him. Worship Him. Serve Him. That's how the psalm starts in verses 1 and 2. This, this great announcement of God's glory as the King who is the Creator of all things. Then it turns from this opening proclamation to the one logical response, which is worship. If God is the Creator King, as Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, the only logical response is to worship and serve Him. That's what the next section of the psalm addresses in verses 3 through 6. And this brings us to our second point, the holiness of God's kingship. So, the only logical response we're saying, the only, the only response that makes sense when we hear that God is this kind of creator king is to worship Him. But verse 3 raises the, the big question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Who, who can worship Him? Who can go up the hill of the Lord? That's probably referring to Mount Zion, the Temple Mount where, where uh, Jerusalem is. This is the place where the temple is going to be built. Uh, this is the place where David's throne will also be. The holy place is also referenced here. That's the holy place within the tabernacle and then later the temple, the place where God's glory is. It's the, the vestibule, as it were, to God's throne on earth. These earthly places, this, this Mount Zion, the, the hill of the Lord, the holy place here, are pointing us beyond themselves to the heavenly dwelling place of God. The psalm is, is, is asking, who can ascend to God's dwelling place? Who can go live where God lives? Worship Him as He should be worshipped. Ascend to that heavenly temple dwelling 
of God. Here's the logic of verse 3. We know, in light of the fact that God made everything and owns everything, that He deserves eternal praise. But who can actually give Him that? Who, who can actually approach Him in praise? More than that, who can actually approach Him and expect Him to accept that praise and to even give blessing in return? Who can approach a God like this, this great Creator King, and expect that that God will love Him and receive will give, will give Him favor? What kind of, uh, what kind of man can approach that kind of God and, and have, have that kind of a God as their covenant Lord dwelling with them in intimacy and, and fellowship and communion? Answer, verse 4. Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. In other words, this is the kind of man that can approach this kind of God. A holy man. Verse 4 says we need to have clean hands. This symbolizes outward actions. Our outward actions need to be blameless if we're going to approach this kind of God. The verse tells us we need to have pure hearts. So not just our outward actions, but our inward life needs to be pure. It needs to be undivided, focused on the Lord, not tainted by sinful affections, sinful thoughts. And then the verse, the verse goes on. One who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. One then that's saying, who has not worshipped other gods. Someone who has not uh, served a counterfeit instead of the Lord. Someone who's never loved something or someone else the way only God should be loved. Someone who's never served something or someone else the way God alone should be served. And then the psalm goes on, one who also has not sworn deceitfully. One who has integrity in their relationships with others. One who doesn't lie and bear false witness. One who doesn't say one thing and then do something else. That's what kind of man. The kind of man who's like that is the kind of man who can ascend the hill of the Lord. Worship Him. Receive blessing from Him. In other words, what is required to draw near to God in worship and receive blessing from Him is complete, comprehensive righteousness in thought, word, and deed towards God and man. What this all shows us, brothers and sisters, is the holiness of this God. The holiness of the Lord. Not only is, is He the Creator, the All-Powerful One, the, the Ruler, the Sovereign, He's also infinitely holy. Absolutely without, without, a, without a trace of sin or evil. Right, that's the song that the angels sing to Him in that heavenly temple, in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. They sing it without end. And so if we try to approach Him in that holiness, as this psalm is reminding us, and we are not ourselves holy, the result is that we will not be able to approach Him. We'll be consumed by His wrath. We'll be, we'll be cut off from Him. We won't be able to draw near to Him. We won't receive blessing from Him. We won't be able to receive the reward of the covenant. On the other hand, the, the psalm does tell us that if we are righteous, then we will receive blessing from God. Verse, verse 5. 
describing still this man who's righteous, who ascends the hill of the Lord. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So I'm saying, if you are righteous, then you'll receive blessing from God. He'll rule over you in righteousness and justice. You'll be in his kingdom. The question then is, right, as, as, as we work through this, who can be these things? Who can be that kind of man who can receive blessing from the Lord? Who's righteous enough that they can draw near to God, live where he lives, get blessing from him instead of wrath? Well, verse 6, I think, gives us the answer. It's a surprising answer. It says this, This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Jacob's another name for Israel. So in other words, those who are righteous, who may ascend to the Lord's presence, are the people of Israel. It's surprising, isn't it? We think about Israel. We don't, we don't think of them typically as fitting the criteria we just went through, of being able to receive blessing from the Lord and worship Him. They don't, uh, typically, we don't think of them as faithful to the Lord. We think of them as often being unfaithful, worshiping false gods. How can the people of Israel be those who are fit to draw near, as David says here? I think there are two reasons. Two reasons why. The first is is this. Israel was not required by God to be sinless in order to be in His covenant and receive blessing from Him. And so this psalm here isn't, I think, requiring in one sense that they are without sin to ascend to God's holy presence. It requires that they seek God's face, as verse 6 says. It requires that they are uh, endeavoring to keep the law according, according to the Ten Commandments. Right? But, but the covenant that God makes with Moses is a covenant with grace. It's an administration of that covenant of grace. And it doesn't require absolute sinlessness. There's, God provides a mediator, someone who can pay for your sins, right? He, gives it, he, he provides a sacrifice in the Old Covenant too for sins. So when the psalm here tells you you have to have clean hands, well, you can say, I, I myself am guilty of sin, but, I've, but I'm trusting in the, the mediator God will send as, as that mediator is pointed to by this offering, this sacrifice that I've brought. So there's a sense in which we can read this psalm, Psalm 24, and say, well, you know, the people here would have read this and said, well, we're trusting in the Lord's mediator that he will send, and we're, we're relying on his grace for these sins that we've committed to forgive us, and that's why we can ascend the hill of the Lord. And that's very true. But there's, there's another aspect to this as well that I think, uh, I, I think the Holy Spirit intends for us to see. And that is this. There's an echo of Eden here in Psalm 24. In the Garden of Eden, right, which is depicted often as, a, as God's heavenly temple dwelling, come down on earth, uh, on, on a mountain as it were. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, Adam is given a test. Right? Adam, obey, if you obey the covenant, then you will ascend to perfect communion with God. You will, you, will, you will be brought into God's glorious presence forever if you fulfill this test that God gives him in Genesis. You'll ascend the hill of the Lord. You'll have fellowship with him. If you disobey Adam, if you fail the test, you'll be cut off. You won't be able to ascend the hill of the Lord. 
The question this psalm is asking is, when will the Lord provide us with a better Adam? Because, of course, Adam failed that test. When will the Lord provide us with a better Adam who can ascend into the Lord's presence on the basis of his own righteousness? Who will pass the test? Who will keep the law? Who will bring us into glory? Right, Because the Old Testament saints, they're trusting in a mediator too. That's the only way they can draw near to God's presence is if God does provide a mediator who is perfectly righteous. Who can do it? The psalm kind of leaves us wondering. And then we come to verses 7 to 10. Our third point, the victory of his kingship. Listen to verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Do you hear the sudden change there in the psalm? We've gone from wondering, who will God provide as the righteous one who can enter his presence? We've, right, we're, we, we, we go from wondering that to suddenly something very different. God himself is ascending. God is going up to the temple. We've gone from wondering how, how we can ascend to an announcement that God is ascending the hill of the Lord. Do you see the point? This is the answer to the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? God himself. And it's as though, it's as though we're standing there at the temple. The gates are shut. And we're wondering, who can climb those steps and go into that temple? And then we hear the trumpets behind us. And, and the Lord himself comes. And the gates swing open to him. The King of glory comes. He's the only one. He, the King of glory has to do what Adam couldn't do. He has to do what Israel couldn't do. He has to do what we can't do. Keep God's law perfectly, blamelessly, and then enter into the Lord's temple. What has the King of glory done? The picture here is of a triumphant return from the field of battle. The, the idea is that the king of glory has gone out from his temple, he's conquered his enemies, and now he returns. Verses 8 and 10 tell us who the king of glory is. Quite clearly, right? Verse 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Verse 10, who is this king of glory? Again, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The psalm is painting for us this picture of a king returning victorious from battle who has matchless strength and power. No one can stand before him. Verse 10 fleshes out the picture. He's not returning by himself. He's returning with a host of warriors, of angelic armies, ready to fill his every command. This king has total power. As, as David writes this, you can imagine what might have been in his mind. How the Lord was for him this this Lord mighty in battle, how the Lord had fought for him. You can think of his defeat of Goliath or the armies of the Philistines, right? David saw this play out right, in actual warfare as he, as he fought for the throne of Israel. And then as, as David himself finally does come to the throne, he knows he's not the real hero. He's not the real king here. God is. God is the, the mighty, victorious king. As such, it's only to the Lord that the doors of the temple should be opened. The, the, the temple is the palace of the Lord. It's, it's, it's where God Himself dwells. He's the King coming home. And the doors are flung, are flung open and welcome to Him. 
Well, I hope it's clear by now that Christ, of course, is in view in this psalm. The Son of God Himself. Very God of very God. The Lord of glory. The Creator of all things. The Sustainer of all things. The Son, even as we read earlier in Hebrews 1. He comes down from heaven. right? He, he leave, First, He leaves that heavenly temple. He comes down and He comes out to conquer, doesn't He? We don't usually think that way about Christ's first advent. But, but we should think about it in that way, at least in some sense. He comes to conquer. He comes to, to do battle, to establish His kingdom. He comes and what does He do? He, he goes out into the wilderness and He defeats Satan. He goes and he, he casts out demons. He brings healing. He calms storms. He has total power. He's subduing all things before Him. He raises the dead. And we see every enemy of God's people being crushed before this conquering king. But then something really interesting happens, doesn't it, as we think about the life of Christ. The earthly temple, the temple that, that at least in some respects is in, is in mind here in Psalm 24, the earthly temple doesn't open its doors to Him. The King of glory comes down to His own house and the doors are shut. There, there, there's no announcement that the King of Glory has come. Instead, what do the people do? They take Him outside the city. They reject Him. They take Him outside the city and they crucify the Lord of Glory. But instead of destroying, what does this King of Glory do? Christ came with all power and He could have destroyed all His enemies. But instead of that, He goes to the cross. He dies. But that's, of course, just the first half of the story. Then he rises. He rises from the dead. And then what does he do? He ascends into heaven. And then that's the moment when he, the gates of the heavenly temple, the temple that really matters, are flung open. He ascends as the better Adam, as the better Israel, the true Israel. And the gates of heaven swing wide to welcome this perfectly righteous one. He comes. He's the King of glory who has won the victory. He comes into His own temple and He's seated on His throne. It's a glorious picture. That's, that's the picture Psalm 24 is pointing us to. What is it, but what does it mean for us? Why does this glorious King, Christ, ascending, what does that mean for us? Let me draw out two reasons. Uh, first, this Psalm tells us, it tells you, it tells me, nothing less than that Jesus has won complete victory. He's won victory over sin, Satan, death itself, all his enemies. Think about how many terrors, brothers and sisters, we would face if it weren't for the victory of Christ. Think of the terror of sin, the power of sin that we would face if it weren't for the victory of Christ. The vice grip sin would have in us apart from him. Think of the guilt that, that would be ours apart from the victory of Christ. The debt, the impossible debt we would be carrying still. Think of the powers of darkness. We would have no defense against every temptation of Satan if it weren't for the victory of Christ. We would be utterly vulnerable to every attack. And then finally, we would face death itself. Vulnerable. Who can stand against that? It kills all joys. But, but this psalm, Psalm 24 says... The King of Glory has defeated every enemy. 
So what, what, can, what can harm us? What, what can, right, in the short term, so many things can, but in the long term, right, ultimately, permanently, can anything? Christ is the King. He's won the victory. So there's a great comfort for us as we read this song. There's another reason, though, that, that we should... Uh, see why this psalm matters for us. Not only does Jesus, the King of glory, have victory over all his and our enemies, he's defeated them all. What's the center of this psalm about? It's about who can draw near to God. Who can have blessing from God? Who can go live where God lives? Only Jesus can open the gates of the heavenly temple and bring us in to receive blessing from God. This is put so simply, but so well, and Jesus loves me. It's not the first verse. It's, I think it's the second, perhaps. It's, it goes like this. Jesus loves me. He who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. That's how we can have what we were made for. The glory of God, that we would love it and worship Him for it, and, and, and adore Him for it. How can we have our chief end? Christ comes, dies, rises, opens the gates of heaven, lets us in. So brothers and sisters, let us praise our King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, and live in the light of His great victory. Let's pray together. We pray that we would fix our eyes.